Thanks for joining us for our Cypress Shop podcast today, Test, Trace, and Isolate, a second fireside chat with Dr. Newt Mehta. I'm Scott Hecker, Senior Counsel with Cypress in D.C. I'm in the Labor and Employment Group with a focus on workplace safety, wage hour, and government relations and policy. Uh, before joining the firm, I spent 12 years at the U.S. Department of Labor, the last approximately five of which as a member of the Occupational Safety and Health Division of the Solicitor's Office, where I represented OSHA. And I'm honored to have my good friend, Dr. Newt Mehta, back for another conversation. Newt has his MD, MPH from Harvard. He's been a business consultant and a healthcare exec. He's a practicing hospital doctor, and he works with state and local governments through Partners in Health on COVID-19 response. Thanks for coming back, Newt. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back. Of course. I'd like to provide some context on testing, contact tracing, and isolation quarantine, quickly going through some of the CDC guidance out there, and then we'll jump into our conversation. Sound good? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. So CDC says uh, folks who should get diagnostic, excuse me, diagnostic testing are those with symptoms of COVID-19, uh, people who've had close contact with someone with confirmed COVID-19, or people who have been asked or referred to get testing by their healthcare provider, local or state health department. Now, there may be different or additional requirements for particular industries like healthcare or critical infrastructure. And as always, there may be differences across jurisdictions. When it comes to contact tracing efforts, those are spearhead, spearheaded by public health agencies. Uh, but employers are subject to various jurisdictional reporting requirements uh, for positive employee tests. Whatever those requirements may be, it's certainly a best practice to support public health contact tracing efforts, which employers can do by, for example, implementing COVID-19 workplace response protocols and, you know, keeping logs listing people who have been at the work site. As to isolation and quarantine, you need to isolate if you have COVID-19 symptoms or have tested positive for the virus. And on the quarantine front, CDC continues to recommend quarantining for 14 days after last contact with a COVID-positive person. However, the CDC recently provided additional options for shortening the quarantine periods. The first, uh, you can shorten to after day 10 without testing if there have been no symptoms reported during daily monitoring. And the second option, you can end quarantine after day 7 if a diagnostic, got at that time, specimen collected within 48 hours of the end of the planned quarantine test negative and no symptoms were reported during daily monitoring. Uh, so these issues obviously all impact the employer-employee relationship and employers, as noted above, should, should really continue uh, to implement COVID-19 response plans which are required in many, but not all jurisdictions. Uh, they're designed to control exposure and to limit spread in the workplace. Beyond that, employers will want to plan for reduced employee availability. And we often see guidance recommending flexible sick leave and work from home policies as well. Now, there are significant questions here about employers' responsibilities to employees who need to isolate or quarantine and can't work remotely, particularly what paid leave requirements might apply. The Families First Coronavirus Response Act provides for some leave at the federal level, but as with everything COVID-19, states and even smaller entities have their own directives, some that apply more broadly than the FFCRA. The FFCRA, for example, has coverage limitations where it only applies to employers with fewer than 500 employees. So addressing these questions would require a whole another podcast or webinar or semester-long course, 
and maybe we'll get there. But in the meantime, the firm has some great resources concerning the lay of land, lay of the land uh, on paid sick leave. So please reach out to your CIFAR attorney with questions on that. And with that said, Newt, I want to know what we mean from your healthcare perspective when we say case investigation or contact tracing or supported isolation and quarantine. What do these terms mean? Yeah, you know, these are just really standard public health interventions that have been going on for years and years uh, from from back in the day with with cholera to TB to more recently Ebola and SARS. Um, you know, case investigation is a process where positive cases are outreached, they're interviewed and then they're provided with isolation recommendations. As part of that conversation, that begins the contact tracing process where positive cases inform the case investigator, people who have met uh, the close contact criteria, which is 15 minutes of exposure to someone with a positive case. Now, those contacts are subsequently identified of their exposure. And of course, during that conversation, you don't reveal the source, but um, those conversations are about providing quarantine guidance and usually enrolling someone in a, in a symptom monitoring program, which you sort of mentioned above, um, uh, during the uh, course of that quarantine period. So when we're talking about supported isolation and quarantine, we really should emphasize the word supported. And we know that a lot of people can't safely complete a full 10 or 14 day period because you know, they have to go to work or they have to go to the grocery store. Or they have to care for a loved one. And we know that this disease has really affected disproportionately, you know, you know vulnerable communities. And, and so supported isolation is, is really about uh, helping to provide things like food and, and rental assistance, PPE, hygiene kits, and, and many other, you know, resources in order to help people complete, you know, the public health recommendations. Just it provides a sense that you know, the recommendations will be able to be followed if we can just help people through that period. Now, you know, from our seat here, it's December of 2020, uh, things are really in a bit of flux. And, and as you mentioned, uh, the CDC has recently uh, produced the, the quarantine recommendations. And, and that was a choice that was really trying to balance the uh, efficacy or the ability of people to actually complete a quarantine period with the potential increase in, in transmission. And, you know, these recommendations are based in science, but that's the kind of tough choice that, that the CDC was having to make. Right, and so you're, you're seeing the CDC decide people may, the, the rate of compliance might actually increase if you have a shorter quarantine period. Um, and overall, it might be a net positive because you're having more people comply with that shorter period and the risk of transmission lessens yeah. the longer that period gets. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, how about in contact tracing? What what's what are the effective strategies you've seen deployed, and then what have you seen that that can really use some improvement? Yeah. So you know, most places around the U.S. are are doing basically telephonic uh, case investigation and contact tracing, and that to me is really the minimum of what state and local health departments should be doing. But in addition to that, I, I think you know progressive or, or forward thinking um, uh, jurisdictions have added a communications campaign to encourage people to answer the call from contact tracers as in some places reach rates have been as low as 40%, which obviously is not uh, what you what you wanna see in terms of a contact tracing program. There's been a lot of different innovations in this play, in, in this space. Um, one of them has been, you know, deploying a field-based case investigation team who will actually go knock on some people's doors who, to, uh, on people's doors who haven't answered the phone or didn't provide a, an accurate phone number. Um, 
as you're probably aware, you know, early on in the pandemic, Google and Apple also really pushed for a technological solution whereby if you opt in, you can be notified electronically if you've been within uh, 50, uh, you know, six feet of someone for 15 minutes or more. And, you know, uh, just like, uh, you know, here in DC, if, if you get the an opportunity to, to, to log in and start to opt in. Um, unfortunately, uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, people haven't uh, really adopted these technologies widely, uh, as opposed to in Asia, where uh, there was quite a bit more uptake of these of these programs. So, unfortunately, we just haven't seen the, the benefits um, of these technological solutions. Well, if it helps, I opted in in D.C. Me too. Me too, Scott. Excellent. And we are so, also I mean, in different houses, so we are <laughs> we are distancing as well. We are we are safe. We are safe. So I mean, really, yeah. the biggest challenge for contact tracing efforts going forward are, are really about speed. So, so how quickly can you reach people while they're in that very early critical period when they can be infectious but are not yet manifesting symptoms? And and the second is is really about reach. So we're, you know, as you know, we're in the midst of of a big spike in new COVID cases, and the contact tracing workforce has been stretched so thin to the point where in some places they've stopped contact tracing altogether and really focused their efforts on isolating the cases because we know that they're infectious right now. So obviously that's not ideal, um, but balancing speed and, and, and reach has been, I think the real challenge as, as cases have risen. Yeah, so what you're talking about some of the, the sort of um, barriers there with contact tracing, what are, what are some of the barriers to supported isolation and quarantine? I mean, I would imagine community buy-in, as we talked about, sort of balancing what people are able to do in the in the quarantine, you know, the length of quarantine. What what else is is a barrier, and you know, how have jurisdictions responded to try and overcome those barriers? Yeah, the, you know, the biggest challenge here is about resources and funding. Um, all of these uh, supported isolation programs cost money. Food costs money. Rental assistance costs money. Um, hoteling uh, folks who can't, uh, you know. Uh, separate themselves from household members. Uh, it's just cost money. But I think what's been encouraging to see is that uh, state, and health, uh, state and local health departments have really uh, partnered uh, with local NGOs, uh, as well as faith-based organizations to try and provide as much support as they can, uh, especially, again, for those who, who are the most vulnerable um, in our society. So uh, I think the good news is that is that uh, People have been really scrappy um, and, and innovative in trying to find ways to help their communities uh, get through these quarantine isolation periods, um, which which has the double purpose of of not only you know helping the, the individuals but of course helping the communities by preventing spread. Got it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we'd be having these conversations uh, anyway. So so being able to record them and get them out to other folks is is fun for me. Um, and maybe the firm will keep letting us do it. But uh, <laughs> in the meantime, <laughs> thank you for, for joining again. And thanks to everyone uh, listening. If, uh, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to uh, your CIFARTH attorney. And have a great day.